Hello, this is Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. I want to welcome you to the February issue of the journal. We are now starting our third year of publication and are excited to continue to bring you interesting and impactful original basic science and review articles. We've added a dedicated allied health professional section to the journal led by Dr. Margaret Harvey and a fellows corner led by Dr. Valentina Kutifia. This issue of the journal leads off with the article submitted by Dr. Harvey and co-authored with Amber Seiler. It is titled, Challenges in Managing a Remote Monitoring Device Clinic. This paper seeks to address recent advances in remote cardiac monitoring technology, which have created additional challenges for clinic and staff alike. A 27-item mixed-method survey was developed using a Qualtrics encrypted anonymous web survey tool. Demographic information and questions rating satisfaction level for remote device clinic issues were obtained using a five-point Likert scale. There were 34 respondents, amongst whom about 50% were either satisfied or unsatisfied with issues of device clinic's management. The themes that they identified included poor connectivity, staffing issues, and the large volume of alerts. The paper also addresses opportunities for improvements in areas of successful device clinic management. We thank the authors for this inaugural paper for our Allied Health Professional session and look forward to more submissions. The next paper is a review article titled Arrhythmias in the COVID-19 Patient. This is by Drs. Michael Lavelle, Amar Desai, and Elaine Wan. In this comprehensive review, the authors discuss the cardiovascular and specifically arrhythmic complications of severe illness with the COVID-19 SARS-2 virus. The readers will appreciate this up-to-date review of this topic. The first original article in this issue is titled The Efficient MRI and Endoscopy Safety Substudy, a Visually Guided Radiofrequency Balloon Ablation Catheter for Pulmonary Vein Isolation. This paper is by Dr. Daly and others from New Zealand who described their experience with a novel multi-electrode saline-irrigated radiofrequency balloon catheter with an integrated camera system, which has been previously reported to be safe and effective for single-shot pulmonary vein isolation with shorter procedural times. This current sub-study seeks to assess the rates of subclinical cerebral events. This study was performed at two sites. Patients had PVI by radiofrequency balloon catheter and were compared to patients who underwent traditional RF ablation PVI. Both groups underwent a stroke scale questionnaire and brain magnetic resonance imaging before and after the ablation procedure. In addition, esophageal endoscopy was performed after the procedure in the radiofrequency balloon patients only. There were 27 patients enrolled in the radiofrequency balloon group and 15 patients in the control group. Baseline characteristics were well matched, approximately 60% were male in the radiofrequency balloon group and 50% in the traditional PVI group. Chad's VASC was 1.9 and 1.5 respectively, and the mean age was similar in both groups. All of the patients studied had successful and complete procedures. Clinically silent new MRI-detected cerebral lesions were identified in eight patients or 30% in the radiofrequency balloon group and in one patient or 7% in the controls. Similarly, susceptibility-weighted lesions were seen in 11 patients or 41% of the patients in the radiofrequency balloon group and in one patient or 7% of the controls. Post-procedure endoscopy showed one patient had had a mild thermal injury in the RF balloon group. The authors conclude that the incidence of subclinical events of 30% was higher than a comparator group undergoing conventional ablation. They note that in this small study, the results are comparable to initial reports of other multi-electrode ablation systems. The authors suggest that giving heparin should be given prior to the transeptal procedure and could reduce these rates. 
They also suggest that MRI susceptibility weighted imaging may be a more sensitive test to detect subclinical embolic events. A major limitation of this study is its small size and larger studies would be needed to confirm or refute these findings. The next paper is by Dr. Chu and colleagues and is titled Diagnosis to Ablation Time Predicts Recurrent Atrial Fibrillation and Rehospitalization Following Catheter Ablation. The purpose of this study is to examine the relationship between the duration from AF diagnosis to ablation on the outcomes of the clinical response to catheter ablation. The authors use a large IBM market scan database identifying cases between 2014 and 2017 of patients with new AF who underwent catheter ablation. Cox proportional hazard models were used to estimate the strength of the association between time from diagnosis and ablation. Other outcomes were AF recurrence and one-year hospitalization. In total, 11,143 AF patients who underwent ablation were identified. Patients were 59 years, 31% were female, the mean CHADS VASC2 score was 2, and the median time from diagnosis to ablation was 5.5 months. The one-year occurrence of AF post-ablation was 10%. For each year increase in the time from diagnosis to AF ablation, the risk of AF recurrence increased by 20%. The hazard ratio after adjustment for baseline comorbidities and medications was 1.2 with 95% confidence intervals between 1.11 and 1.30. Furthermore, the authors found that a longer time from diagnosis to AF ablation was associated with an increased risk of hospitalization with a hazard ratio of 1.08 for each year from diagnosis to ablation. The association of time from diagnosis to AF ablation was a stronger predictor of AF recurrence post-ablation than other clinical factors such as age, prior heart failure, or renal failure. The authors suggest that these data support other studies that restoration of sinus rhythm early from diagnosis is important to decrease outcome measures. Most notably, of course, this association was recently seen in the reported randomized results of the EAST AFNET trial. The next study by Dr. Brancato and colleagues is titled Temporal Trends and Predictors of Surgical Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation Across a Multi-State Healthcare System. The purpose of this study was to examine the temporal trends and predictors of surgical ablation of AF using the Society for Thoracic Surgery, or STS, database. This is a retrospective study of 21 hospitals in the Providence St. Joseph Health System. The database was searched for patients with preoperative atrial fibrillation who underwent isolated coronary artery bypass graft surgery, aortic valve replacement with or without cabbage, mitral valve replacement, or repair with or without bypass surgery between the years of July 1, 2014 to March 31, 2020. A multi-level logistic regression model was used to examine patient, hospital, and surgeon-level predictors of surgical ablation. A total of 3,124 patients with preoperative AF were identified, of whom 910, or 29.1%, underwent surgical ablation. The most common associated surgical procedure was isolated mitral valve repair or replacement in 44.8% of the patients, or mitral valve repair or replacement combined with bypass surgery accounting for 35.2%. Rates of surgical ablation increased over the time of observation and were variable between hospitals. In a multivariate analysis, 12 risk factors remained in the final multi-level regression model, but only three predictors were found to be independently predictive of having surgical ablation. The first was the length of time since the surgeon's graduation from medical school with an odds ratio of 0.71 for every 10-year increase. The other two were having had a surgical date after 2017 and that the type of surgery was bypass plus mitral valve repair or replacement. Annual surgical operator and hospital atrial fibrillation surgical ablation volumes were not predictive of surgical ablation. 
The authors conclude that while surgical ablation of AF has increased over time, there's a wide variability in rates of surgical ablation for AF. The authors further suggest that guidelines would support the greater use of surgical ablation and that team-based approaches should be employed. The next paper is titled, Dose Limiting Adverse Event Associated Bradycardia with Beta Blocker Treatment of Atrial Fibrillation in the Genetic AF Trial by Dr. Abraham and colleagues. As background, the Genetic AF Trial enrolled a total of 267 HEF-REF patients with an LVEF less than 50% with symptomatic AF, and specifically the ADR-B1 ARG389 ARG genotype. The patients were randomized one-to-one to receive bucindolol or metoprolol therapy and were uptitrated to target doses over 24 weeks. The parent study showed that bucindolol therapy did not reduce the recurrence of AF or A flutter or all-cause mortality compared to that of metoprolol therapy in HEF-REF patients. The current report is a post-hoc analysis of the study population who had underlying conduction abnormalities to assess the effect for worsening by the two study beta blockers. Outcomes for adverse events and failure to achieve the target beta blocker dose. Bradycardia was defined as an electrocardiogram heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute and severe bradycardia being less than 50 beats per minute. The authors found that the mean sinus rhythm heart rates were about 63 beats per minute with metoprolol and 68 for bucindolol. For those patients in atrial fibrillation, the mean heart rate with metoprolol was 87 and it was 89 for bucindolol. Episodes of bradycardia occurred in 0.82 of those treated with bucindolol and 2.08 in those treated with metoprolol. Episodes of severe bradycardia occurred in 0.24 versus 0.57, respectively, of bucindolol and metoprolol, and both of these observations were significant differences. Patients who had bradycardia had a 4.15-fold higher prevalence of study medication dose reduction. Fewer patients treated with metoprolol reached their target dose, 61.7% in metoprolol-treated patients versus 74.9% for bucindolol. Also, there were more bradycardic-related adverse events in those treated with metoprolol versus bucindolol, 13 events versus 1 event, respectively. In a multivariate analysis, patients with a pacemaker and patients given bucindolol were predictors of less significant bradycardia. The authors suggest that specific beta blocker agents are less prone to bradycardia and may be considered for specific patients. The next paper is titled Rate of Permanent Cardiac Implantable Electronic Device Infections After Active Fixation Temporary Transvenous Pacing, a nationwide Danish cohort study by Drs. Frausing and colleagues. The background for the study is the known risk factor of using a temporary transvenous pacemaker when implanting a CIED and the risk for subsequent CIED infections. This study investigates the prevalence of using temporary pacemakers with an active fixation mechanism using a nationwide Danish database. Patients were identified who had a first-time CIED implantation between 2009 and 2017. Patients with a temporary pacemaker at the time of implant were also identified and followed for one year, with a primary outcome of CIED infection requiring system removal, and a secondary outcome of systemic infection, and another outcome of hospitalization for infective endocarditis. A total of 40,601 CIED patients were identified, of which 2,952 were treated with temporary pacing. 246 patients met the primary outcome with a risk of 0.61% without a temporary pacemaker and 0.65% for those with a temporary pacemaker. The hazard ratio for this comparison was 1.28. 
but the adjusted hazard ratio was 0.85. These results suggest that despite more systemic CIED infections and endocarditis hospitalizations, which occurred in those patients who had a temporary pacemaker, the differences were not found to be significant after adjustment for confounders. The next paper is titled Prospective Long-Term Follow-Up of Silicone Polyurethane Insulated Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillary Leads by Dr. Kierens and colleagues. This study determines the rate of mechanical failure in the St. Jude Abbott Optum Insulated Leads. The study uses three prospective registries and pools the data. This included 11,155 leads amongst 10,872 patients. This database dates back to 2006. These registries included baseline documentation, six monthly follow-ups, adverse event reporting, and documentation of lead revision or inactivation, study withdrawal, and death or transplant. The study seeks to determine the rates of all-cause mechanical failure and its subtypes, as well as electrical dysfunction adjudicated as non-mechanical failure. All events were adjudicated via the Population Health Institute at McMaster University. Specifically, all potential mechanical lead failures and electrical dysfunction were independently reviewed. The analysis showed that after 4.6 years, 171 mechanical failures occurred in 1.53% of the leads, with a 95.4% freedom from failure by 12 years. These outcomes were not different between the Dorada DF4 and DF1 leads and the Riata ST Optum leads. Over time, the year-over-year failure rate increased. There were also 69 electrical or non-mechanical failures for a rate of 0.62% with a 98.8% freedom from electrical failure by 12 years. The authors conclude that over a median of 4.6 years of follow-up, the rates of electrical and mechanical failure were low in the optimum leads. In the next paper, Dr. Sampagnero and colleagues from the Duke University present and discuss two cases of azagus ICD coil lead extraction. These two cases were identified from their lead extraction database between 2015 and 2021. The authors identify the outcomes of procedural success, use of laser and mechanical cutting tools during the procedure, procedural complications, and mortality. In both cases, the coils were successfully removed. The next paper is by Drs. Wilkoff and colleagues from the Cleveland Clinic. The title of this paper is Novel Ventricular Tachyarrhythmia Detection Enhancement Detects Undertreated Life-Threatening Arrhythmias. This study reports the findings using a novel ICD detection algorithm developed by Abbott to address the often variable far-field R-wave signal amplitudes during polymorphic VT and VF. Such variable signals can delay delivery of appropriate ICD therapy and also result in inappropriate termination of the therapy. This algorithm is called VF Therapy Assurance, or VFTA, and seeks to overcome these potential weaknesses of the current SecureSense algorithm, which utilizes comparison of far-field and near-field signals. There are specific undersensing criteria that if they occur are tracked by individual counters, and when such episodes cross an algorithm-defined threshold and at specific checkpoints, then adjustments are made to the detection, termination, and redetection algorithm and ultimately for therapy parameters which govern the delivery of high-voltage therapy. Most notably, VFTA will transition detection to a single zone and add 100 milliseconds to the lowest rate cutoff in the zone with programmed therapy, 
and also increase the number of required normal rhythm RR intervals to terminate or abort therapy delivery. It also will prevent further ATP therapy in default to shock therapy. Ventricular tachyarrhythmia electrograms stored in Abbott's Remote Monitoring Database, or Merlin.net, were randomly selected from ICDs with Secure Sense enabled. Multiple episodes in which non-self-terminating ventricular tachycardia episodes occurred and spanning over multiple stored episodes were merged into a single episode for the analysis. Next, computer simulations were used to model detection, redetection, and therapy delivery according to the original programming of each device for each merged episode. The electrogram events were analyzed with VFTA disabled and then again with it enabled. An episode was considered terminated if high voltage therapy was delivered or would have been delivered with the VFTA enabled. The analyzed events for the VFTA enabled data set and in which the algorithm met conditions for high voltage therapy to be delivered were adjudicated by the physician experts. Additionally, episodes adjudicated were those that showed that VFTA would have allowed for earlier delivery of therapy by at least 30 seconds than what the device actually would have delivered without VFTA enabled. The authors state that the findings show an overall rate of 0.27% of new or earlier appropriate high-voltage therapy with VFTA. An important limitation of this study is adjudication was limited only to those 105 electrograms where the algorithm would have delivered earlier therapy or therapy that would otherwise not have been delivered. Thus, a determination of the comparison of VFTA and traditional methods was not presented in this study. The authors conclude that 0.22% of patients with an Abbott ICD had at least one episode of undertreated VF or polymorphic VT event that this novel algorithm would have improved the timeliness of high voltage delivery. The next paper is titled Healthcare Utilization and Clinical Outcomes After Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation in Patients with and Without Insertable Cardiac Monitoring by Drs. Mansour and colleagues. This study seeks to examine healthcare utilization and clinical outcomes post-AF ablation comparing patients who received an insertable cardiac monitor compared to those without an ICM. This study used data abstracted from two databases, the Optum Clinformatics and Medicare Fee-for-Service 5% Sample Claims databases. A propensity score matching was performed comparing patients who received an AF ablation between January 1, 2011 and March 31, 2018, and who received an ICM within one year pre- or post-ablation in a 1-3 to year ratio to patients without having received an ICM. The outcomes were AF-related healthcare utilization, medication use, and occurrence of the composite of severe cardiovascular events. The results showed a total of 1,000 ICM patients and 2,998 non-ICM patients. During a mean follow-up of 33 plus and minus 16 months post-ablation, ICM patients experienced significantly fewer severe cardiovascular events, rates of 1.09 versus 1.37 respectively, and associated costs 20,757 versus $29,106. These comparisons were both significant. ICM patients had a greater number of AF-related clinic visits, 16.8 versus 11.6 visits, and were more likely to receive a repeat ablation, 38.7 versus 32.4%, and again, statistically significant observations. Total all-cause costs during follow-up were not statistically different. Discontinuation of oral anticoagulation was higher in ICM patients at one year, 44 versus 31%, and at two years, 73% versus 64%. 
The authors suggest that closer patient management using long-term monitoring after an AF ablation may avoid inpatient hospitalizations despite increased routine office-based visits and aid in more timely therapy changes. The next paper is by Dr. Lee and colleagues from Case Western Reserve University. The title is Reliable Pace Termination of Postoperative Atrial Fibrillation in the Canine Sterile Pericarditis Model, Implications for Atypical Atrial Flutter. These authors use an animal model to examine mechanisms of postoperative of cardiac surgery, atypical atrial flutter. These authors had previously identified a reentrant circuit located in the pulmonary vein region, which appears to drive the atrium and lead to atrial fibrillation. They posit this could be one mechanism to explain postoperative atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation. Using the animal model as described in this paper, they tested the hypothesis that overdrive pacing from a site at or near the reentrant circuit could interrupt it and thereby terminate or prevent atrial fibrillation. A canine model with sterile pericarditis was used and included 11 animals. Evaluations occurred on postoperative days 1 through 4. Atrial electrograms were recorded during atrial fibrillation. Overdrive pacing was performed and pace termination was performed from Bachmann's bundle, posterior left atrium, and the right atrial appendage. 16 episodes of sustained atypical atrial flutter lasting greater than 5 minutes were induced and were diagnosed by electrocardiogram. When capture of the reentrant circuit occurred, the episodes could be successfully terminated. The authors conclude that they were able to identify an area of stable high-frequency regular activation in the atria and suggest this may be one mechanism responsible for postoperative atrial fibrillation. Overdrive pacing was successful to terminate this reentrant circuit and therefore terminate postoperative atrial fibrillation. This next study is from Dr. Lintz and colleagues from the University of Copenhagen. It is titled Pharmacologic Inhibition of Acetylcholine Regulated Potassium Current, IKACH, Prevents Atrial Arrhythmogenic Changes in a Rat Model of Repetitive Obstructive Respiratory Events. This study is based upon the observations that during obstructive sleep apnea, intermittent hypoxemia, and intrathoracic pressure fluctuations can increase the risk of atrial fibrillation which are mediated by cholinergic activation. In this animal model study, the authors seek to examine the atrial electrophysiologic consequences of obstructive respiratory events of simulated intermittent negative upper airway pressure, specifically to examine the role of acetylcholine-regulated potassium current, which is activated by the M2 receptor. During the application of negative upper airway pressure, the atrial ERP was measured and atrial fibrillation inducibility was performed. Subsequently, protein levels of kinase C were measured in membrane and cytosolic left atrial tissue. Additionally, the effect of inhibitors of IKACH and muscarinic receptors was tested. The primary findings were that repetitive intermittent negative airway pressure significantly shortened the atrial ERP and increased left atrial membrane protein levels of kinase content relative to cytosolic levels. Upon recovery from the intermittent negative airway pressure, the ratios of protein level kinase in the membrane to cytosol content normalized, and the induced atrial ERP shortening was reversed. The inhibitors tested increased the baseline atrial ERP and abolished the intermittent negative airway pressure associated with AERP shortening. The authors conclude that short-term simulated obstructive sleep apnea is associated with a progressive but transient atrial ERP shortening and a protein-level kinase translocation to the left atrial membrane. 
The next study is by Dr. Chen and colleagues from the University of Arizona College of Medicine. It is called Direct Subxiphoid Pericardioscopic Visualization of Epicardial Ventricular Tachycardia Mapping and Ablation. This paper reports on three patients undergoing epicardial VT ablation. Direct visualization of the epicardium within the pericardial space was achieved in all three patients and high-resolution electroanatomic mapping was performed of the substrate and VT circuit. In all patients, blunt dissection of adhesions was performed successfully guided by the perioscopic cannula and endoscope. In one patient, a vacuum-assisted linear ablation tool used underneath the phrenic nerve resulted in termination of the VT within the epicardial isthmus upon application of suction prior to ablation. Radio frequency was subsequently applied to these lesions. This approach was not used in two other patients due to the breakout locus of the activation pattern and the proximity of the PDA and PLV. The authors conclude that this novel pericardioscopic approach may be a useful adjunct during sub-xiphoid window approach for epicardial mapping and ablation of scar-related VT. Furthermore, direct visualization of intrapericardial adhesions may facilitate safer and more extensive access during dissection and verification of epicardial radiofrequency lesions, and this may improve efficacy. The next paper is a design paper titled Personalized Pacing for Diastolic Dysfunction and Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction, Design and Rationale for the MyPACE Randomized Control Trial. This is by Dr. Infeld and colleagues from the University of Vermont School of Medicine who are conducting a prospective randomized trial exploring the benefit of higher rate backup pacing in patients with HEF-PEP or diastolic dysfunction. In this study, the interventional group receives a pre-specified pacemaker programming and will be compared to a control group with outcomes assessed at one year. At the time of submission, 107 of planned 118 patients had been enrolled. One-year follow-up ended December 2021, and we await the findings of this interesting study. Finally, finishing up this issue is a short piece by Dr. Valentina Kutifia describing the new Fellows Corner Initiative and the types of articles which we hope to receive from fellows in training. Well, this concludes the podcast for the February 2022 Heart Rhythm 02 issue. Thank you for listening.